Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are a married couple, parents of three, Spencer and Emily Tixon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good Did, to be with you. Will you, Spencer, will you? No, let's ask Emily to do this. Will you spell your last name for our listeners? You bet. It's T as in Tom, Y-C-K-S-E-N. And Emily, tell us about your family, how many kids you have. So Spencer and I have been married for 20 years, and we have uh, three kids. No, 21 years now, right? (laughs) We've got three kids. um, So a daughter that's 20. We have a daughter that's 18 and goes to Brighton High School. And we've got a 12-year-old son up at uh, Butler Middle School. Um, you have a wonderful family, and I—I I became aware of Spencer because of his assignment as a high counselor in the Butler West Stake, and he gave a talk in the Butler West Stake called "My Grace is Sufficient," and he talks um, openly about his his pornography use, and um, he is part of President Crandall, a close friend of mine, is the stake president of the Butler West Stake. Um, President Crandall, and I'm grateful that President Crandall had you speak about this and felt like it was a topic that needed to come out of the closet, so to speak, and be more openly addressed. And But for you two to talk about this, and I realize it was Spencer's talk, but Emily's a big part of this story. So this is a podcast for you that are working to solve pornography, or you that have a partner in your life that you're trying to help solve pornography or you that are a priesthood leader looking for more insights to help someone solve pornography. That's our prayer that we shared before this podcast started, is that this, that Spencer's story will give you insights and hope um, and additional tools to walk out of this road. So we're going to start with um, Spencer. We're going to invite you to the Butler West Stake, and we're (laughs) going to you're all in the congregation of the Butler West Stake, and it's High Council Sunday. And sometimes there's something in our culture about high schools, about High Counselor Sunday. It can be a little boring. <laughs> Dry but, council. <laughs> but if a high counselor is going to get up there and talk about his own pornography use, I don't think anybody fell asleep during your talk, Spencer. So with that, uh, I'll just turn it over to you, Spencer, to give your talk, unless you want to say anything before you give your talk. Sure. Um, thank you, Richard. I think... Um, I think one thing I did want to clarify is that this wasn't an assignment by President Crandall, but this was something that I'd been working on for, well, a lifetime, really. And I knew that eventually, when I was called to the High Council, I knew this was going to be one of my talks eventually. And then the time, it came became very clear to me that it was going to be this year. Did um, President Crandall know you were going to talk about this? No, not. I, I'm, I had basically written the talk, and then I approached him and said, this is what I had in mind to talk about. And he said, go for it. Cool. Yeah. That's great. All right. So I hadn't really planned on giving my talk. So this is going to sound just like, like Richard said, that you are in the congregation. Had I thought of it, uh, it would go this way. I might have, have tailored it for the audience, but I think it's okay. It's a great talk. So I'll just, I'll just kind of dive right in. Um, okay. Again, my name is Spencer Tixon, and I'm going to talk about my struggle with pornography. I have battled an addiction to pornography nearly all my life, um, just so that you understand I'm 43 years old, and it started when I was very young. Um, my bro- older brother and I experienced something uh, awful when we were just little boys, and it kind of sparked a curiosity into things that, that no five-year-old should be thinking about, and it 
it really kind of grew from there. That is my earliest memory that I can think of is my, my older brother and I were, were molested when we were really young. So when it comes to addiction, I don't use that term lightly. Addiction is a very serious, very terrible thing. Yeah, my personal definition, I have never actually looked up what the definition of addiction is, but my definition is when you know how serious the consequences are, but you can't stop the destructive behavior. You know that you could lose your wife, your kids, your job, your testimony, your freedom, even your membership in the church, and yet you still can't stop yourself from acting out. And as many of you know who might struggle with this, it's like torture to be an active member of the church when you are under the control of an addiction to pornography. It is a very real addiction that has been compared in seriousness to uh, an addiction to heroin. The unseen burden that you carry is so oppressive, so overwhelming, so emotionally exhausting. Pornography has a way of totally extinguishing the light in your soul. It's like a black hole. And it is nothing short of spiritual poison. It fills you with darkness. It robs you of your testimony and your goodness. At my worst, when I was really struggling the most, I couldn't look people in the eye. Uh, it didn't matter where I was. I struggled with my confidence. I was so lost. I was so lonely and isolated. I felt like I had lost my identity, my sense of humor, my joy for life, my self-confidence, and my self-worth. The guilt and shame that you feel are totally consuming. Being an addict and being a member of the church are like oil and water. They don't mix well. Every week you have this immense struggle to get to church and once again face yet another failed attempt at recovery. I didn't feel worthy to serve. I didn't feel worthy to, to pray. I didn't feel worthy to participate. I didn't want to be called on in church for anything. I didn't feel worthy to take the sacrament. There was always this weekly struggle. Should I take the sacrament? Should I not take it? I have a family. I have three little kids. What if they saw me not take the sacrament? I often sat in the chapel with my head down in my hands. I always, always came. I never didn't go to church. I always went to church. But I, I didn't want to be there. In fact, I hated going to church. But not because I didn't believe, but the exact opposite, because I did believe. I had a testimony. I knew that it was all true. And Elder Anderson said, I think in the last spring conference, um, I felt the same way. He says, I knew that God knew that I knew that it was true. So I, I knew that I had to go, but I couldn't reconcile my behavior with the standards that I believed in and knew were right. And that is a very hard experience. I didn't want to see anyone and I resented everyone. I couldn't stand being around, around quote unquote happy people because I was miserable. So it was, it was this cycle every week. Every week I had to go through this over and over, and it was exhausting in, in every way. Um, you heard my wife earlier. My wife's name is Emily. I confided in Emily early on in our marriage about this problem, probably about four or five months into, uh, into our, our marriage. And it was really hard for her. It crushed her. It broke her heart. I, had, I knew that I had deeply hurt this beautiful innocent woman that I, I absolutely adored and I hated myself for it. I worried about the effects that this would have on my children and on my ability to be a good father. I used to hope that I would never have a son because I was so afraid that he might have this problem too and I didn't want him to have to go through this. That shows a little bit about how broken my brain was at the time. The worst part of it about all of this is that there was no hope. I had tried everything. 
I met with every bishop I ever had, and I confessed and sought help. I went to professional, professional counselors and group therapy. I went to Sexaholics Anonymous and did the 12-step program. That was actually my favorite and probably one of the most helpful. I had a sponsor. I journaled. I cried my eyes out to the Lord in prayer and begged him for relief. I tried thought control, positive affirmations, uh, even hypnosis. I was diligent in reading the scriptures. I fasted so many times. In fact, there was a time I used to punish myself with fasting. My brain wasn't quite right there, but I was trying whatever it took. But this wasn't going away. In fact, it was progressing. It was getting worse. I got to a point where I couldn't feel the spirit anymore, and that's a very scary place to be. I felt numb and disconnected. I thought that I might even be possessed. I didn't care anymore, and I loathed myself, and I wanted to die. So what I've recounted here is, is barely a fraction of my overall feelings and experiences that I've had with an addiction to pornography. And I don't presume to speak for other addicts or other types of addictions, but I'm assuming that, that this experience is similar to other types of addictions. So the question becomes, why, why talk about this? Why would I put myself through this? This is my high counsel talk. And so by the time that I'm done with it, I will have had to give it seven different times to seven different congregations. And while I'm not ashamed, it is a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassing. But I give the talk for two reasons. One, because I was prompted to several times by the Spirit to do so. It was, it was uh, undeniable, and it was very clear. And so being concerned about this topic, I discussed it with my stake president, President Steve Crandall, and I got his blessing to proceed. And he was great about it. And then number two, the second reason is because I, I knew that there was someone who needed to hear it. There's someone out there right now who's going through these very things, who's, who's experiencing this awful suffering that I've described in the same way. And I, I hope in some small way that I can help them. So changing gears, I would, I would like to demonstrate how my addiction has become one of my greatest blessings. So I'm going to say that again. I want to demonstrate how my addiction to pornography and the suffering that I've gone through has become one of my very greatest blessings. That may seem paradoxical. But I believe that the, the Lord often works through paradoxes. For example, what would you refer to the place where the devil and his angels dwell? Well, we call it hell, don't we? Well, where do the devil and his, his angels currently dwell? Right here on earth among us. So in one way, we all have to go through hell in order to get through heaven. And my addiction to pornography was a part of that hell that I've had to go through. Ether 1227, the scripture mastery verse used to be one of the most frustrating scriptures for me. You know the, the scripture. This is the one that talks about weak things becoming strong things. Only weak things were not becoming strong things for me, no matter how hard I tried. I was really, really struggling. But I learned, after much experience, that I was focusing on the wrong part of that verse. Just before that line in that scripture, there is a promise that if we humble ourselves and have faith in him, then the Lord's grace is sufficient for us, which is a huge promise. What does it mean? It means that if we humble ourselves and treat our, our weaknesses with humility, then the Lord's atonement works for us. He saves us from our sins, even me, even wretched, addicted me, that we can not only be forgiven of our, of our weaknesses, but that we can overcome them, that the Holy Ghost will purify us and change our hearts and our nature. 
but the condition is that we humble ourselves and move forward with belief. So I began focusing on how to be humble with this awful addiction. That meant being totally honest and transparent. It meant repenting over and over and over. It meant, be, meant asking for help and being willing to do whatever it took to get better. I would have to try every program, talk to professionals, confide in people I trusted, and work with church leaders and do whatever they told me for as long as it took. And this part sounds cliche, but it's very important. It meant never giving up. And so I, I did just that. And it is really hard to summarize what happened. And I'm very much oversimplifying here when I say this because this has been a lifelong challenge, but things did, in fact, get very much, much, much better, much better. Today, it is a night and day difference from where I used to be. Today, I am so happy. I absolutely love my life. My marriage with Emily is, is incredible. It's wonderful. My relationships with my children is, is a huge blessing and is fantastic. My testimony is strong and my faith is bright. I can feel and recognize the spirit and its influence in my life. And out of weakness, I have found great strength. In addition, I have come to know the Lord personally. So I'd like to tell you about how the Lord has blessed me through this weakness. My, my addiction has made me a better man. Or rather, the fight against my addiction has made me a better man. It has humbled me and made me reliant on Christ's grace. I've come to know Jesus personally through my suffering and his mercy. And I know him. I know him personally. He and I are eternally linked. I respect the nature of addiction, and I feel compassion for those who suffer from addictions of all sort. I find that I'm quick to forgive, and I like to think that I can forgive anyone of anything because I have received forgiveness, because I desperately desire forgiveness from Heavenly Father, and because I've had to forgive myself countless times. I have learned to love myself in spite of my weaknesses, which is a big thing, and this also helps me to love others. I've come to recognize that I am strong, really, really strong, not physically, but spiritually. I've learned that my testimony is powerful and my resolve is ironclad. I've had to pick myself up out of a quagmire surrounded by, the, by darkness and the forces of evil so many times, over and over and over, and drag myself back into the light. And every time, every single time, it is a Herculean task that perhaps only an addict can understand. It's so hard. It would always, every time, it would have been so much easier to just give in and give up. I've been climbing a very steep mountain for decades, and I am better for it. This weakness, I have learned, was a part of my plan. It was given to me to teach me certain lessons that I could not learn any other way. Those who have never experienced addiction often struggle to understand it. I've had, and you may have experienced this or know someone who's said something like this, but I've had well-meaning loved ones say things like, well, just stop doing it. She didn't understand addiction. Or after two visits with a professional counselor, a well-meaning bishop asked me, so are you, are you fixed now? He didn't understand addiction. Or, and this one, for me, it hurt the most. He said, if you were in the Book of Mormon every day, you wouldn't have this problem. He didn't understand addiction. That made me feel so broken because I was in the Book of Mormon every day. Now, this is absolutely not an indictment against these people. I, I love them. I appreciate their love and concern, and I wish that I, I could be like them and not have had such a serious problem. 
addiction is a very real, very complex issue for which there is no magic solution. It is like a jigsaw puzzle with, with half the pieces missing, only you don't even know that they're missing. You have to discover those pieces throughout your experience and then work them into your solution. For those of you who may struggle with this or with other addictions, I, I do not know how to solve your puzzle. But what I do know is that there are a few pieces that are common for any puzzle that I would recommend. The first of the three that I'm going to share, and the very biggest, is that you cannot give up. You must make a commitment to yourself, to God, and to your loved ones that you will never stop trying to overcome. No matter how many times you stumble or how many lapses you have, you must keep going. This includes committing to do whatever it takes to get better. Be humble about this and let God do his work on you. The second piece that I will share is is about the Book of Mormon. That person who made the comment about being in the Book of Mormon every day wasn't wrong. He was right. The Book of Mormon is a very critical piece to this puzzle, puzzle, but but this isn't a one-piece puzzle. And the Book of Mormon doesn't immunize you against sin. Otherwise, this life would be cake. But there is power in the Book of Mormon power to change you, power to change your heart. And when we we can first change our hearts, then we can start to make progress on controlling our bodies. The third is to continue to serve. This one's really important because it goes contrary to everything that you feel as an addict. You don't feel worthy to serve, but it's very important that you continue to serve. Every time that we serve or pray or help someone or perform an act of kindness or study the scriptures or do anything good, when we really live the gospel, it changes us. The changes are imperceptible, but these tiny improvements all add up over time and it changes our character for good and we become more Christ-like. Though I have much more to say about these things for the purposes of this talk and for simplicity, those are the only pieces that I will share today. They may seem obvious or even trivial or simplistic, but they're very important, and I would ask that you do not dismiss them. They are these, these, again, do not give up, stay in the Book of Mormon, and continue to serve. If it were up to me, we would talk about these things much more often, more candidly, more openly, and so for that, I'm deeply grateful for Richard Osler and this podcast for, for helping to spearhead that effort. For some reason, pornography is such a taboo topic topic. In the church, we do hear plenty about how bad pornography is, how toxic it is, but not enough about what to do if you are caught in its snare. In, I think, maybe uh, April 2020 uh, General Conference, Sister, Sister Raina Aberto of the General Relief Society Presidency said, quote, when we open up about our emotional challenges, admitting that we are not perfect, we give others permission to share their struggles. Together we realize there is hope, and we do not have to suffer alone, close quote. She's absolutely right, because there is hope. Everyone has unseen battles that they are fighting, and we shouldn't have to suffer alone. We are all on the same journey, walking each other back to God. I will talk to anyone who needs it. I'll try to help you. Emily, my wife, is an amazing resource. And she has such experience and wisdom and, and has wonderful counsel for anyone uh, in her similar situation. And she would love to help. We talk about how the church welcomes everyone. And we really do try to be welcoming. 
But for those who do not live up to certain standards, or worse yet, cannot live up to certain standards because of addiction, it is a very difficult experience. There's a standard of worthiness that is right and has been established by the Lord, a standard that I believe in. Standards for taking the sacrament, for holding the priesthood, holding certain callings, going to the temple, etc. This creates a bit of a problem for those who lie outside these standards. It can be a miserable and isolating experience. Some people just want to come to church and feel peace, feel strength, feel the Spirit, and find healing. And I pray that we can recognize that in each other and treat each other with gentleness. I want to testify that the Lord has this remarkable ability to take broken people and make them whole. It's His amazing superpower. The Lord is not an accuser. He came to save and to heal us. The Lord's love and power was manifest to me through Emily. Her love, forgiveness, and support absolutely gave me wings and was the by far the biggest driving force in my recovery. I'd like to conclude with a story told by S. Michael Wilcox, one of my favorite LDS speakers. He tells the story of how he was preparing for a Sunday school lesson one Saturday. He had his scriptures out and his marking pencils. He was making notes in the margins and underlining scriptures. His little son, McKay, who just loved his dad, had come over to join him. He saw what his dad was doing and decided to copy him like our little sons often do. He got out his own set of scriptures and decided to color in the scriptures like his dad. Brother Wilcox mentions here how he would always get a little, get quite consumed in focus when he would prepare a lesson. He had noticed that his son was there, but he hadn't paid too much attention to what he was doing. It took him a little bit of time to complete his lesson, all the while his son was right there copying dad. When he finally finished his lesson, he looked over at what his son had done and was stunned by what he saw. He pulled his son's scriptures over and began examining them. This little boy had exactly copied what his dad had done. Every verse that he had highlighted, his son had highlighted. The colors matched exactly. The notes that he wrote in the margins, his son had copied as closely as he could in his little boy handwriting. He was amazed at what he saw, and it must have shown on his face, because as he was examining this, he heard a sniffle. He looked over at his son, and he saw that his son had begun to cry. And he said, McKay, what's wrong? And the little boy responded through tears, I'm sorry my lines aren't straight like yours, Daddy. This little boy thought that his dad was criticizing his work, criticizing his efforts to be like his dad, criticizing his crooked lines and messy handwriting when what he really felt was such joy and pride and love in his beautiful little son for trying to be like him and do something good. Every one of us is just like that little boy. We are trying our best to be like our our father, and our lines aren't straight. They're going to be straight eventually, but not yet. And when our Heavenly Father looks on our weak attempts to be like him, on our crooked lines, he smiles upon upon us with such perfect love and joy. So let us be patient with ourselves and with each other as we make our lines and try our best to be like him. I bear testimony that there is hope in Christ, even for the addict. Consider the words of Jesus Christ. They are appropriate for this talk. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Or be of good cheer. I have overcome addiction. What a savior we have. Isn't he wonderful? I'm so thankful for him. 
His atonement is real and it works, and His grace is sufficient for all those who humble themselves before Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 Thank you, Spencer. On behalf of all our listeners, it's a great talk. Um, just a wonderful talk. These podcasts focused on pornography have about 12,000 listens, so you just gave a high council talk to 12,000 people. <laughs> um, and I think on behalf of all of them, um, it's very, very helpful. What, I, are there things that, I have questions I'd love to ask you, but are there things that either of you'd like to share right now as follow-up to your talk? Um, for those that are out there that struggle with this, I'm going to address those addicts. I wonder maybe, Emily, if you have thoughts for spouses of addicts. Maybe you have some thoughts that you'd like to share, but um, I think it's so important that you don't beat yourself up. It's, I mean, it's so hard. Life is hard enough. Um, and the Lord wouldn't do that to us. He doesn't do that to us. We, it's, that standard can be crippling when you, you don't meet it, but it really is important to keep going because you will get better over time. If you keep trying and you really are humble about it, you'll get better. And the Lord will work on you, work on, on you. He'll change you. He'll, he'll, he'll help you. He'll help fix your heart and heal you. But it takes time and patience. And lapses are a big part of the recovery process. You're not starting from square one every time. Just, just keep going. Thank you, Spencer. Um, I think for a spouse, maybe the biggest um, thing that I have learned or that's helped me was that the addiction is not about me. It wasn't something that I was lacking in physical appearance or um, in my personality. It had nothing to do with me. And for a long time, I think I took it personally, but when I was able to realize it honestly had nothing to do with me um, and that I could still find joy in life and also support Spencer, um, things really started to change for both of us. And so I think making that step, knowing that your spouse um, is hard enough on themselves and that you don't need to add any extra pain. Um, it doesn't help. <laughs> so just supporting them and loving them and um, knowing that it has nothing to do with you. It, that's what helped me. That's great, Emily. I love that advice. Talk to a spouse um, that's just learning this about their spouse. So that's going all the way back to 1999, I guess, for you. Yeah. And and I realize you may be talking to men who a, a wife opens up to them about pornography. Mm -hmm. I think I've had enough women reach out to me and said, you know, there's women that struggle with this too. So you may be talking to a man who's learning his wife as a pornography problem, but just talk to somebody who the spouse has opened up for the first time about this. And it may be somebody that's um, in the dating, the serious dating stage, so they're opening up, or somebody that's married now and opening up for the first time? Um, okay, so I think, wow, how much, so thinking about the addict sharing this with you, um, think how much they love you and how much they trust you to share this 
information that they know is going to be hard for you to hear. It is not easy for them to share this. And I know hearing it is going to be painful. It's going to cause a lot of questions and maybe uncertainty in that first, um, in that first phase. But if you love this person, you can work through it. It is so worth it. What did you do? Great answers. You're doing great, Emily. Oh. <laughs> what did you do to get support? Um, did Spencer give you all the support you needed or, or did you need support outside of what Spencer could give you? Great question. So for me, it did take uh, time. It took time for me. Um, I obviously talked to um, like the bishop to get advice from him. I talked to a counselor at one point and um, different therapy groups, I guess, and different self-help books. So just as Spencer looked for different ways to find help for him, I was doing the same for myself. And I think that through those actions, I was able to um, little by little heal and find support where I needed it. And it is, it feels very lonely. It feels, I think in our church, um, something that we don't talk a lot about. So you don't just bring it to Relief Society or, you know, and say, oh, this is what I'm dealing with this week because you don't want to bring shame upon your spouse. So that's where it feels like you can feel um, kind of alone. And and so looking for that support that you need is important so that you find it. Have you felt in your ward and stake um, an increased measure of love towards you or people opening up to you or just you're safer because both of you are kind of talking about this or have you felt people withdraw from you and it's made your journey a little harder? So this is newer to us that we've really been this open about it. Um, but definitely more connections. People are jumping at the opportunity to talk to somebody that is going through their same, their same issue. So I am happy to talk to anyone. If there's anything I can say or help in any way, I am not a counselor, but just having someone that's gone through it, it helps so much to have that support and just know we're doing it together and that there is light at the end of the, at the end of the road. So, yeah. I love that. I love that. I love all your answers, oh. <laughs> Emily, and I love that people are safe opening up to you. And I, it's a credit to you. And I know Spencer obviously knows this firsthand that, that this doesn't create shame that you're embarrassed because I think shame is Satan's. I, I've said on this podcast Satan really doesn't win if we sin. He wins if we can, he can create shame that separates us from God, separates us from each other's spouses, separates us from our ward families, and just isolates us in whatever's going on. That's where Satan really wins. So to me, getting up on the pulpit and talking about this is a great way to empower um, yourself and, and to further your road to full recovery. So I'll turn it back to you, Spencer. I'll bet you've got some thoughts you'd love to share. I do have some thoughts there, especially about shame, because um, it it is a very powerful tool of Satan. It's it's like his, it's a, it's a proxy for him. In other words, if he can get you to 
through shame, get yourself to stop going to church, stop taking the sacrament, stop, um, stop feeling worthy to serve. Um, because you, you were the one that's beating yourself up and telling yourself over and over and over, I'm not worthy. And you are fighting his battle for him. And you, he doesn't, he doesn't have to have to bother you with it, bother with you anymore. He can just let you fight yourself because that's what we do. And in, in that way, we become our, our biggest stumbling block because we keep ourselves from making any progress because we buy into that lie. Um, I had on just this last Sunday when I gave this talk in a ward, I had a young man come up to me afterwards. So sweet. And I could tell that he was nervous and he, he was, about, I think he's about 14 years old and he came up to me and I, I gave him my attention. I didn't say anything. I wanted to just let him say what he had to say. And it was really sweet. And he said, I'm the reason that you needed to give this talk. It was so sweet. And my heart just kind of broke in half because I thought, gosh, here's little Spencer so many years ago. He's on the other end of this journey. And I just, my heart just broke for him. And so we got, um, we connected later that night and were able to have a private conversation. One, one of the things that I wanted him to understand at a young age that I wish I knew back then was that we don't have to qualify for God's love. There is no amount of steps or good things that we can do to qualify for God's love. It's, it's always there and it really is unconditional. And um, I wanted him to understand that if we are really trying and like that scripture says, if we're being humble about our weaknesses, no matter what our weaknesses are, and acknowledging our mistakes, trying to do better, and believing all the while in Jesus Christ, then the atonement works for us right now, that we are forgiven, we are made clean, we are with him a perfect partnership, um, which qualifies us to return to live with God. And I don't think people understand that part of the atonement. I think that people think that they have to reach a certain level of worthiness before they can qualify to be forgiven. And I, I disagree with that. I think that the Lord's atonement is powerful and that all he asks is that we continue to try, have faith in him, even with our addictions and weaknesses, and believe in him and just try. And it works. It works. I love that. I just... I echo everything you just said, Spencer, and I'm glad that 14-year-old had somebody like you. And I love the way you just saw your 14-year-old self in him. And that, to me, I read this quote a lot on the podcast. It's Henry Noren, the wounded healer. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. So one of the blessings of your joint road is that you're able to lead others out of this desert because you know the desert. Yeah. And, but you can authentically give people hope and tools and perspective. And I just think that's why we're here in mortality. We weren't here in mortality to be perfect and sort of isolate ourselves into perfection. We need other people in our lives and we need to be healed and help heal other people. So I love... Um, and there's a lot of 14-year-olds listening right now that are that young Spencer. Yeah. Um, I love, I wrote an article for the Ensign that's in the October Ensign, Seven Steps to Overcoming Pornography. And 
the very first one I mentioned is the one you just said, and it's that you are a child of heavenly parents who love you. And because of your divine nature, you're always worthy to receive hope, inspiration, and personal revelation. And I just agree that one of Satan's biggest lies is that we're no longer worthy of God's love and that we've gone so far that their love has been withdrawn or the atonement doesn't apply to us. And to me, that's back to where Satan ultimately really wins if he can cause us to believe this lie. Um, So I love, I just, you know, we sometimes want to just fix ourselves and then we'll return to the atonement or return to church or open up to our spouse. But we need all these people and we need to be honest and vulnerable because that's, as you're talking about the road to healing and your humility as part of your talk, Spencer, is I'll do it all. I'll be honest and vulnerable and transparent. That to me is part of the broken heart and contrite spirit that's part of the road to leave the wilderness of healing. More thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I love how you talked about our Heavenly Parents, because when I think about Heavenly Father, and forgive me if I speculate, but I'm going to a little bit here. This is not in the it's canon. Okay this is not this in the podcast. scriptures. We are good about that. It's not speculation to say that our Heavenly Parents are perfect. But where I go from that and the conclusions that I draw might be a little bit of speculation. So, But if our Heavenly Father is perfect, then He is also the perfect teacher. And he is the perfect preparer. And we spent eons of time with him in a pre-existence where he was preparing us and teaching us for this very experience that we're going to have, that we're having right now. And it's my belief that he, he warned us about these things and taught us and showed us what kinds of things we would be going through and the experiences that we go, were go, going to experience. And so for him, it was no surprise, here we are in mortality, it's no surprise to him that we have these these addictions, these weaknesses, and make all sorts of mistakes. It's no surprise to him. He knew all along that it was going to be that way. And so that's the plan. It's the the plan to have weaknesses and go through this this experience and, and learn to rely wholly on Jesus Christ to overcome them for us. And it may be for some of us, that we never get there, that we never get to a point where we say, gosh, you know, I'm finally, I'm finally clean. I'm finally, uh, I'm finally over this addiction. It may never be that way. And you have to understand that that's, that's okay because you have a savior who did overcome it and you're a partner with him. That's, those are our baptismal covenants. We take his name upon us. He becomes one with us. His number is in infinity. Ours is negative, whatever. And infinity always makes up for whatever weakness and whatever negative number we put on ourselves. And so I think that's really important that we have to understand and believe that that really um, all of this is a part of the plan. It's no surprise to God. It's no surprise to our dear Lord. And that we have a little patience with ourselves as we work through it and be forgiving of ourselves. I love this line. I started many things as you were giving this talk and as I read it before we visited. I would like to demonstrate how my addiction has become one of my greatest blessings. This may seem paradoxical, but I believe the Lord sometimes works through paradoxes. And I just love that, that you look at this, and I look at, we don't really give a conference talk that says mess up because it will refine you in a positive way and bring increased Christ-like attributes into your life, but that really is what mortality is about. If we think about it, we're, we were not asked to be perfect here. 
And I think he's much more interested, not if we sin or not, but how we learn and how we grow and how we become better humans through the mistakes we made. That's how I parent. I want our kids to open to, up to us about everything that's going in their lives without the feeling I'm going to judge them. I just want them to learn from their mistakes and make progress. And sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back and three steps forward and four steps back, but it's the general trend line as a parent I'm interested in. Emily, if what kind of a leash is Spencer on if he messes up? Like, is he one mess up away from now that he's recovered that he's back to square one and you're back to 1999 or... He's I mean, on zero of, leash. It's kind of talking to <laughs> wives that, you know, I, I want marriages to stay yeah. together and you've got a great marriage. And is your marriage, would your marriage end if Spencer, just talk about that. Yeah, absolutely not. You know, I think now that we've worked through this together and I, um, I feel like just like Spencer, I can see the flip side now, how strong our marriage is. And I think, I don't want to bring something bad upon us, but we can make it through hard things together. And we're in this together. And I like to think Satan's not going to break this up. You know, we're we're making it. We're going together. So uh, when you ask about being on a leash, he's on zero leash. You know, he does his best. I do mine. And we work together and keep moving forward. And I think that that is what works for me. And just, you know that I am on my path and Spencer's on his path and we're both doing the best that we can. But together we're grace in that. No, together we're stronger. And so I don't I don't want to be on my own and I don't think he wants to be on his own either. So yeah. This couple's holding hands across the <laughs> hey, we talk love each about, other. <laughs> talk about the any thoughts on that, Spencer, and any role about the spouse. Should the spouse be the person that the person is reporting to can or can or should that be somebody else that's the accountability partner? Can there be trust in a marriage even if you're not telling a spouse every time you mess up? You know, I don't I don't want to dictate, but and it may seem biased coming from an addict saying that I don't think that's a healthy environment for a, an addict to be accountable to his spouse and to have to say every time that they mess up because what that does is if you look at that, say that say that the the spouse says something like this, say that the spouse says, you know, if you mess up one more time, then I'm going to have to, you know, such and such and such move out or, or you'll have to move out or whatever. There's some consequence, whatever that it may be minor, maybe major. Well, then you've got this spouse who's an addict and who's going to mess up again. And when they mess up, who's the last person that they're going to want to tell? That's their spouse that they're being accountable to. And so that creates division. It doesn't create unity, and that's a, that's a problem. So instead of building an environment where they can trust each other and work together, it, it creates a, an environment where the addict wants to hide things from that person. It's an unrealistic expect, expectation to, you know, to set um, limits or to set, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Boundaries, limits? Uh, boundaries or uh, ultimatums type ultimatums. things. And I, and I doubt that people are like that. Maybe some in the beginning stages might be doing that. But I think it's much better to have someone outside of the marriage that they can talk to and be accountable to, whether that's, uh, you know, 
My dad was somebody for that for me. I had a sponsor at one point from Sexaholics Anonymous. There's always your bishop and and many bishops are are wonderful with this. They they're not licensed, you know, clinicians. They don't know how to heal these things and that's okay. That's not their role. Their role is to support and represent Jesus Christ for the members of the ward. Um but yeah, those those are my thoughts. I th- I think it's better. I don't think it's healthy to to, to have that environment where you have to report to your spouse, I think it's better to, to try to create a, um, a, a, an atmosphere where there's, where trust is and where trust is given and, and gifted. And I like that. I'm not a therapist either, but I don't, I generally, and so we're all just kind of giving our best counsel here. Each of you listeners need to get your personal revelation for what's right in your marriage. We don't, none of us want to say this is what you should do, but I do think you, have, you can have trust and common goals in a marriage and not have the spouse be the accountability partner. So you, Emily, can have a general idea of where Spencer is, and maybe you have some ongoing rules that, hey, if, you're, if suddenly happens and you're messing up in a way you've never messed up before. You feel like you're significantly going the wrong direction. Um, I need to know about that. But if you're moving in the right direction and feel like you're making progress and continue with your recovery and are fully recovered, you know, um, and I think some marriages will end because of this. I don't, I don't think any of us want our listeners to, if they're in a toxic relationship where it's actually unhealthy for them, and this has become something, toxic relationships to me are relationships where there's just trauma. And, and sometimes to heal yourself, you have to separate yourself. And marriages end because of this, and I'm sure you're aware. And we're not, none of us are saying, if you're the spouse here, you need to stay in regardless. But you need to seek personal revelation for your situation. And in these kind of podcasts, I think you're helpful because they give you perhaps more tools and you hear couples that are kind of navigating this, but part of what Spencer's done here um, that I think is helps us not to be a toxic relationship and a healthy marriage is just your pure, you won't like these words, but your very best efforts, humility, honesty, um, vulnerability to do everything you know how to do, including being honest with your wife about this. And to me, that is a foundational point to trust communication and honesty and common goals that keeps marriages together. Any thoughts from either of you on that? Um, yeah, I think as far as going back to that reporting, um, I don't think either that for us anyways, it was um, real beneficial to know every single time. And lots of times as the spouse, you can somewhat tell if something is off or um you know, if Spencer's going through a really hard time or seems withdrawn, I may ask, you doing okay? You know, and, and it's as simple as him saying, you know, I, I lapsed and I just say, oh, I'm so sorry. And we move on from there. And so I think, um, and everyone that's listening is probably at, at different parts in their, you know, different phases in their journey. But, um, yeah, I agree that, as the spouse, you don't need to be, you know, checking the boxes and checking every single day. I the don't pornography think police. The, yeah, I don't think that that's going to be healthy. good for either one of you. So having a general idea, yes, because you're being open with one another, but not 
feeling like I'm, I'm parenting him like he's a child and I'm, you know, I don't think that's good. Knowing that Emily is a support to me rather than, a, a you know, someone who's going to crack the whip or someone who's going to punish me for messing up is a big, big, big deal. Knowing that I can actually, when I'm really not feeling well and not doing well, and I can go to her and just say, babe, I'm not doing well. That's cool. I'm struggling. That's so I need cool. some, I, I, I just want you to know. And that, that's it. I, I don't, just knowing that I can say that to her and she's not going to, she's not going to come back and say, well, what did you do? And when did you do it? And, and what were you looking at? And, and why did this happen? And, and how can you stop this going forward? She doesn't do that at all, at all. It's more of a function of, Hey, I can see that you need some love and I've got plenty of that for you. And that's, that's been amazing. And I, I understand that that's a hard place to get to because it, um, this is, it, it is so, such a betrayal to the spouse. It really is hard not to take it personally. And I understand that. I totally understand it. I get it. It hurts. It hurts. So but that, I don't know. Emily is, she's a miracle. How, however she got there, I couldn't say, but, but that I have that as a support is, is a huge blessing to me as an addict. And is like I said in my talk, the, the greatest reason that I've made any progress whatsoever. That's a great, and that to me comes back to what I look at good, good marriages, this vulnerability, this honesty, this trust, this safe space that's created within a marriage to be who you are and talk about what's really going on in your life. And you can do that, I think, if you have common goals. You, you both want to keep the marriage together. You yep. both want to stay in the church. You both want to raise your kids. So I think sometimes if we can go to that level in our marriage and say, okay, even with all this going on, we actually have the same common goals. And so our pillars of foundation are there. Well, Richard, what's interesting, I didn't mean to cut you off, but what's interesting about that is that everybody has those goals at the start. Everybody wants to stay together. Everybody, they go into the temple and they think, we're, we did it. We're married together forever. We're going to have a forever family. But then, you know, then life comes in waves and adversity and opposition come in waves and waves and waves. And we don't often enough talk on the front end about, well, what if this comes up? What if this wave comes up? What if one of us gets severely depressed? depressed and our personality changes completely? What if one of us becomes an addict? What if one of us loses our faith and our testimony? I mean, there's a million different kind of waves of opposition that could come. And I think that for young people, remember why you got married. You love each other. And are you going to make it in spite of those waves? Are you going to fight through it no matter what it is, including an addiction to pornography? I love your jigsaw puzzle. I'm sort of a visual analogy guy. Spencer, those things stick with me. And um, uh, it's like a jigsaw puzzle with half the pieces missing, only you don't know they're missing. You have to discover those missing pieces through your experiences and work them into your solution. I love that. And I love, I've heard a couple times a priestly leader say that no one in my ward who's reading the Book of Mormon has a pornography problem. And I've been really uncomfortable with that. And I'm glad you pointed that out. But I love the way you circled back that the Book of Mormon is a piece. Absolutely. But it's sort of not this binary narrative that sometimes we, because um, I realize that just adds to your load because you love the Book of Mormon, you're doing everything. So then you just think, I am so broken yeah. that even what I'm trying to do to read the Book of Mormon and be in the scriptures every day doesn't solve this. And that, um, 
I love you quoting Sister Roberto with this quote. Um, when we open up about our emotional challenges, admitting we are not perfect, we give other permission to share their struggles. Together we realize there is hope and we do not have to suffer alone. And culturally, Latter-day Saints, we need to learn how to do this better. Um, I kind of coined Sunday School or Elders Quorum or Relief Society as sometimes the best answer club where the the 10% that sort of had the best scholarly answer shine. I love that, the best answer club. <laughs> and the rest of <laughs> us funny. that don't have the best answer or want to vulnerably ask a question of something we don't understand, it's really hard to do that. And we and if we want to open up about a personal struggle with fellow elders about pornography, that's something that would be really difficult to do. And I just think we have to learn to do that. And often it takes a high counselor taking the lead. If you've got a high counselor in your stake um, who's blessed by the stake president, Steve Crandall, to do that, it just creates a culture in your ward and stake that this is how we come together as the body of Christ. And this is how we heal each other. And this is how, um, and that leads me to this line that brought tears to my eyes. I hope you realize how powerful this line is. We're all on the same journey, walking each other back to God. I don't think we're supposed to just work out our own salvation on our own. I think we work it out by helping each other get back to God. I think that's part of the bare morning comfort part of our baptism covenants. There's no scarcity in salvation. It's not if Spencer gets in, I don't get in. <laughs> but I, I just love the power of those words, walking each other back to God. Do you want to expand more on why you added that to your talk? Yeah, sure. Because I heard it from President Crandall. I can't take credit for that one. <laughs> Way to go, Steve Crandall, if you're listening. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I love President Crandall. Um, I wish I wish that we could create that environment where we would just open up. I wish, I have noticed that in my life, I'm only 43, but I've noticed that the Lord put certain people in my life to help me on my journey. There's, there's a handful that I can think of that were really influential in the direction of my life. And it, I, I wonder if it's the same for other people. I think it must be. Um, and if we can really just learn to lean on those people, lean on those people who have strength when we don't, I think that's, I think that's worthwhile. I think it pays dividends. And I think if we could open up in our in our Sunday school classes about our own weaknesses and vulnerabilities. It's like you said earlier that you, you read that quote about the desert. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I really, really like that. But when you, when you have suffered, when you've been through something difficult, it, it's, it's like it marks you spiritually in such a way that someone who else who is suffering likewise will recognize and you and resonate with, and you are able to make a connection with. I could never talk to somebody about, with any real measure of empathy about someone who's had a miscarriage, because I've never experienced that. But I can talk to you about the suffering that comes from an addiction to pornography, and I can talk to you about that very comfortably. Now, how could I ever do that? How could I ever help anybody else if I never suffered in the first place? There's another paradox right there. So, so it's all part of the plan. It's all part of it. I, I hope people will really flip this over, this, this pornography, this addiction, and 
And if you can't solve it, then figure out a way to figure out how you've been blessed by it and how it can become a strength for you. What strengths have you gained from it? How has your testimony been affected? How has your ability to empathize with other people been affected? Has it caused you to be humble? Has it helped you to understand the Lord's grace that much better? Do you understand addiction? Do you care for other people who suffer like that? There, there's so many, so many ways, so many ways that we can be blessed through these, these terrible things that we go through and find meaning in them. I love the way you spoke to people in the addiction. And I love the way you gave them hope that in the middle of the addiction, that they have the ability to help and, and serve others, that they shouldn't just wait till they get to where you are. I love that. I think that's, I think that helps them move out of the addiction to feel like they can contribute right now. Talk and maybe talk about church services as part of how that's helped you. I noticed that when throughout my years of adulthood, when I would pray the most fervently for help, the Lord responded with a calling. And um, it often seemed like a calling I shouldn't accept, that I wasn't worthy. And, um, but whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies, right? I've heard that from President Monson. So I accepted these callings and I decided to serve anyway. And um, I know, looking back, that I was able to make a difference. And I was able to grow spiritually and not just spiritually, but gain leadership skills and, and come to know and love people in my ward and in my neighborhood in a way that I couldn't have otherwise. And I think about when I was called to be the young men's president and I was, I was not in the best place at that time. And young men's presidents seem like a pretty big deal. Like the young men's president, if you're going to be the young men's president, you should probably not be addicted to pornography. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't the Lord talking to me. The Lord was the one who gave me the calling. So I answered it and I served. And the experience that I had with those young men was something, one of the greatest treasures of my life that I would never have had that if I had said, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not going to do that. Um, because the Lord uses broken people to build his kingdom and always has since the beginning. Look where we've come from nothing to where we are now and where we're going, all using broken people to serve. And I was able to make a connection with those young men that I just, I still love those boys today. They're still, they're my friends now. They're all grown up and they're starting their families and so forth. And, and not just that calling, but any calling. There's, there's value to be had and things that I've learned and experience that I've gained and growth that I've had, where if I just dis dismissed myself as broken and unworthy, that I never would have grown. And it, that was a critical piece to my healing. That's why I mentioned it as one of those three steps that you have to do, that you have to keep serving. You're not going to feel like it. You're not going to want to. What do you have to offer people is what you feel. How, how can I lift someone up when I'm in the bottom of a pit? But you, you do have something to offer. You have something powerful to offer and, and you'll gain through that. It's very, very, very important that you continue to serve, continue to try to bless people and make them happy. And as you know, if there's priesthood leaders listening, wondering, you know, what do I, do I extend callings to people who have a pornography challenge? And neither Spencer, I like to use the addiction label very much. We haven't talked about that, but I think Spencer's comfortable using that in his situation, but I'd be cautious about taking that on unless you feel it's true to you. 
But I think the principle of extending a calling is somebody that's working to solve pornography. Are they putting forth the very best effort? So maybe I wouldn't measure it on the amount of use, but their effort to make progress and do everything I'm asking them to do that's in their control, like go to a 12-step program or talk to a therapist. And so I may not extend or not extend the calling based on use. I may extend or not extend the calling based on their heart and their commitment and their honesty and their vulnerability and just trying their very best, the very thing Spencer talked about in his talk. That's just how I'd handle it as a priesthood leader. So I would call somebody like Spencer to be young men's president. Um, if I sensed those, that was part of his journey and I wouldn't disqualify him just on, on that. And to me, that's back to a kind of a principle-based approach here is the heart and the direction someone's going. I think, you know, I'd probably look at Spencer and say, instead of he's one day closer to solving pornography, you know, and look at all the progress he's made. And if he messes up, he's not back to square one. And all the work he done is not for naught. And he can probably help and reach people because he's learned the atonement, Jesus Christ, and is actively working with that in his life right now to help other people. So that's a complicated space, but I guess my point is I wouldn't just make like a fixed rule. I would go by the Spirit in each of these situations because I think that's the power of personal revelation. Any more thoughts on that, Spencer? Just how grateful I am for a bishop that felt similarly. I'm so glad that he called me to such a calling that I did not feel worthy of. I'm so glad. That was, that was a big deal to me to actually be called to be a young men's president when I did not feel like I needed to, I could be there. Um, I think with this addiction, you can, you can have this addiction and you can be happy or you can have this addiction and be miserable. You can have this addiction and you can isolate yourself and stay in your room and never go anywhere, never do anything and never accomplish anything. Or you can have this addiction and you can continue to serve and continue to try to bless lives and try to make a difference. Uh, it's not something that should hold you back from living the gospel, really trying to live it and trying to do what the gospel teaches us to do. It's kind of going back to that. You can't, you can't, uh, we, we can't qualify for God's love once we reach a certain level of, of worthiness or righteousness. It's, it's always there. I love your tribute to Emily. Um, she is so amazing. Um, I'll just read this paragraph. I want to testify the Lord is re it, and his remarkability to take broken people and make them whole. It is his amazing superpower. The Lord is not an accuser. He came to save and heal us. The Lord's love and power was magnified to me through Emily. Her love, forgiveness, and support gave me wings. That's back to your visual imagery you're creating in my mind, Spencer, wings. It was by far the greatest driving force in my recovery. And I, I don't want anybody in the podcast to think that if I'm working to solve porn, it's really about my spouse solving it for me. That's not your point here. Um, I think your point is the role that Emily has as a supportive partner and unconditional love and support and common goals. And I love this safety that you could talk to Emily about, you know, where you are. And that she saw you, the core of you, and saw this was not at the core of you, that the core of you always wants to do the right thing and never wanted this to come into your life. You didn't say at age five or 10 or 15, I'm going to figure out a way to turn away from God and turn towards Satan 
I think I'll start looking at porn. That'll be the way I do that. That was never part of your journey. And that's certainly true for the people that I've worked with. This has not been out of rebellion or desire to turn away from God. This is just something that came in to one's life that's difficult sometimes to end. Any more thoughts on that? Just, I mean, gosh, I wish everybody could have an Emily like I have. <laughs> I really do. She's a remarkable person. And knowing that, knowing that when I need it from her, I can get love. And that's all that I'll get is, is so powerful and it's so helpful. I know that she is so Christ-like in that way that she doesn't condemn either, that she doesn't, she somehow is able to separate that behavior from the love that she has for me. And, and that is a huge thing for me, for someone who's trying to recover. It is so powerful and so motivating for me that I want, I want to be good for her. I mean, it's, if it were the opposite, I would, I just would never want to open up. I would never want to share if I knew that, if I knew that I was going to get grilled after that. So it's, it's just, you know, and I'm thinking about the people that are out there that don't have this and that are still trying to figure it out. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not in, you know, judging them. I, I, I get it. I really do. But I, I, I think it is, it's so powerful to, to get to a place of love for your spouse where, where there is no judgment, just, just love for each other. It's very, very, very helpful. Your kids know about this because you're talking about it. Why, why? I mean, some parents would say, if I talk about this, I'm more, my kids are more likely to have this problem and I shouldn't. Emily's over here shaking her head <laughs> vigorously sideways. <laughs> Talk I, about that, Emily. I think the more open, once again, the more open we are with our kids from a young age, talking about challenges and problems and just how we want them to be able to come to us as parents, um, it's the same. Our Heavenly Father wants us to come to Him, you know? And so I don't think the church... Um, culture will get any better if we continue to hide things, if we're open with each other, if we show, yes, like this is something that we work through. Spencer and I work through together and, and look where he is and we, you know, love him. And, and I think it gives them a feeling of, um, I guess, safety and knowing if I come with a problem, mom and dad are going to understand and love me through it. And so that is what we're trying to create. And I think as a culture in the church, that is what we're trying to create. So one of the things um, that I wanted to just say about Spencer, when he was saying um, about separating, you know, as the spouse separating um, his addiction from him, you know, him as a person and I think we had a stake president, perhaps, that... that no, it was a bishop. Oh, explained it in a way that... It was Oscar McConkie III, if anybody knows Oscar McConkie. So good. Yeah. If he's listening, I remember this quote from him. Say, you say it. No, you say it. You brought it up. I, I think it was that you're, you know, you're an amazing person with a small problem. And when you look at it that way... It just brings so much perspective. Spencer is this incredible human with one little flaw. And I think sometimes what we do to ourselves and to others is we magnify 
whatever flaws or addictions or trials and blow them out of proportion. And that's the only thing we're focusing on. We're not looking at that's how we all define ourselves. the amazing things yeah. about ourselves when it's just, so maybe that wasn't the quote, but something similar to no, that. He said, he said, you're a good man with a little problem. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, one of my favorite quotes from Brene Brown is, shame says I am bad versus I did something bad. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I do love what you're teaching here that um, I as parents want to create a culture where our kids will open up. And I recognize if I'm your, you've got a 12-year-old son, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm your 12-year-old son I, and your daughter's, they're older, I'm just guessing that they can talk to mom and dad about what's going on in their life because mom and dad are talking pretty honestly. And I just think then we're able to help each other. And so, I mean, that's a real 180 from where I'm 60 listeners. Next spring, I'm already calling myself 60. It's just easier. I'm rounding up. But that's just such a 180 from the way I was raised. We wouldn't ever talk about this. We wouldn't ever talk Um, as a priesthood leader, we would never open up about any mistakes we've made. And I'm not saying we should necessarily, but I think in the right situation, being what Sister Alberto is teaching from General Conference and what you did in your, is that's the way we heal each other. We need to learn to do that as a culture um, because I think we're aching for those vulnerable healing conversations instead of the correlated Best Answer Club conversations that are great. I love, I love learning more about our doctrine and having great doctrinal scholarly insights. But at times, this is the kind of things that we need to have happen at church. For the record, you don't look a day over 59. <laughs> you are so kind. <laughs> um, I'm going to give them, I, for our listeners that don't follow or just hearing uh, my podcast for the first time, We've been doing a lot of podcasts on porn, and I've created on our website, listenlearnandlove.org. There's a tab across the top called Podcasts, and there's um, now a dedicated um, link to then all of our podcasts around porn, and we've done a lot. And um, I just will just add this one to the mix, and but. It's interesting as I've listened to all these podcasts, the same general principles come through every podcast. That's interesting. And even though you have never listened to any of these podcasts and they, as people are receiving personal revelation and they're all kind of the same general narrative, shame is part of every one of these podcasts and the role of shame in a negative way and talking openly in the role of a spouse. So, um, I encourage our listeners to check out, if you haven't, just my article in the Ensign, the October Ensign, Seven Tips. It's very, you know, high level. Spencer's going to be able to take you to a much deeper place with this podcast. But one of the things that I just feel impressed to mention is step is number five, understand the difference between lapse and relapse. Lapse is where you mess up, but you quickly recover and use it as a learning experience in a positive way. To me, that's um, a good, you know, that's a lot better than relapse is where you just give up. You falsely believe you're back to square one and you binge and you just don't care. So that's kind of a pragmatic approach to a mess up, Um, but make it a lapse, listeners, 
and look at it as a learning experience to understand what happened and what set of circumstances led you to lapse, maybe for the first time in a long time. And instead of saying you're back to square one or all the work you've done, you're back at the bottom of the staircase, that's just Satan's lie. Or that you're now re-adding to the Savior's pains of the atonement, that's a lie. He's already paid the price for all your lapses and relapses. He just wants you to take advantage of it. So that's just a thought that other people have helped me understand that really resonates with me. But I'll turn it back to Spencer and Emily for any closing thoughts. And maybe just talk to people that are in, that are just in the middle of it right now, Spencer. Just give them an olive branch, brother. You already have of what you could say to them. And they just feel like they just can't ever escape. Gosh, I, I, wish, I wish I knew what to say. I wish I knew. Oh, the secret puzzle pieces. This, those secret puzzle pieces. I wish, I wish I knew how to help everybody. I wish I could hug everybody that's going through this and just say, it's going to be all right. Just keep going. I try to imagine how the Savior would respond to us and what he would be like if he were standing next next to us and how he how encouraging he would be and how how loving he would feel and how how he would put his arms around us and say, "You got this. It's okay. Let's just, let's just keep going. Let's keep trying. It's all right. I we got this together. We're we're a companionship." And um, maybe stop trying to be so tough all the time and, and, and trying to figure it out so much on our own. The Lord placed people in our lives and, and on this earth to help us get through this journey. And don't, don't be afraid to use those people. Don't be afraid to be humble about it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Spend some time on your knees and, and ask the Lord how, how you've been blessed through this addiction. Write those things down. Read that scripture, Ether twelve twenty seven, and think about what it means to be humble about an addiction to pornography. What does that mean for you? And to have faith in Christ for an addiction to pornography. You know, take a pad and a pencil and, and write down whatever comes to you and then do those things and fail several times as you do it, but just keep going. Just keep trying. Believe that it will work out. It will. And if you make it to the end of your life and you feel like you're not, you haven't conquered it, and that you still feel like you're not there, it's all right because the Savior has. And He's perfect. And His love, you cannot stray beyond the boundaries of His love or His atonement and His power to save. But He does want us to try. And so whatever that means for you, just keep going. Just keep going and progress will be made. I promise. I promise. Don't beat yourself up. Just keep, keep going and know that I love you. I, I don't know who you are. I know you're out there and to those spouses, my heart goes out to you too. And I love you too. And, and the Lord's love is powerful and it, it's there for all of us. Boy, Emily. amen to all that. I don't know what else to really add. Just um... bring it home, Em. <laughs> Spencer said one thing that just kind of, um, kind of brought a thought to my mind that if you can ask the Lord, how do you feel about me and listen while you're praying and really ponder on that, when you feel like you have a clear picture of how he sees you, 
it doesn't make it as hard to keep going. When you feel like I am more than I feel that I am, you know, we are these glorious beings and sometimes it is really hard to see that within ourselves. But some of my um, most memorable and, and um, most sacred prayers have been when I have asked the Lord, how do you feel about me? How do you see me? Um, when I've been struggling and to feel his love. And just like Spencer said, to feel like he is right there helping you with every step. It gives you strength and, and makes you feel like you can figure out whatever hardships and whatever situations you're navigating. So, um, yes, I love you all. And thanks for listening. We may put a link to Spencer's talk in the podcast um, copy so people can read his talk and, and go back and read some of those words. Um, but just a couple of closing thoughts. I believe this challenge is peaking. Um, you're the first generation that's dealing with this 24-7. And I think as Spencer is becoming the leaders and fathers of today, and tomorrow, and you will just have better tools to walk people out of this wilderness. And, and if they kind of step in this wilderness a little bit to help them to leave that wilderness quicker, because you'll talk about it earlier. <laughs> um, and there will be less shame and less isolation. So I have great hope um, for the future of the church and the future um, of this challenge to be peaking now. Um, that's just how I feel. And so I have great hope when I meet people that are like Spencer and Emily. I'd like to thank Brian Kowalski. If I'm saying your name right from your stake, that it was the one that connected me with Spencer. Um, he loved your talk and is the one that put this podcast together. I'd like to give a shout out to your stake president. He's a personal friend of mine. He's one of the most Christ-like men I know, Steve Crandall. He um, professionally helps me as a physical therapist with my back. Um, but he's just one of the finest, most Christ-like loving men I know. And, and I hope this is okay. I share this story, Steve, but I was at a dinner where we were talking about LGBTQ a few years ago. And your trainer, the man who trained you on your mission, is now a transgender woman, presents herself as female, takes female names. And you just sat with her that whole dinner. And you just saw her as one of God's daughters, one of God's children and called her by the pronouns that she preferred to be called by and asked her about her experience. And to me, that's just what the doctrine of Christ would teach in that. Um, I love this idea that to fully love and follow God, it's a false dichotomy that we have to stop loving some of his children to do that. And I love the way you just are with everybody um, in a loving way as a, as a human, as a priesthood leader, as a father, this is an example to me. And to me, you didn't compromise our doctrine by being with your trend, your transgender trainer. That's complicated space. You, um, but to me, you taught the doctrine of Christ to love everybody. And I'm grateful for your example in my life and grateful for Spencer and Emily Tixon for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.